0: It's Carla-Marie Sweets here, and you are listening to The Playmakers Podcast, a new podcast by Box of Tricks Theatre Company that is all about platforming creative conversations with theatre makers from all parts of the industry. Now, if you've just listened to the previous episode, you already know what this episode has in store for you. Yes, it's the final two conversations with this year's Playboxes. In this episode, we're going to be speaking to Lakani Cherwa, and Mohammed Barber. And it's also the final episode of this season. But don't worry, season two is already being developed, and I'm so excited about what we're planning. But first, let's crack on with this episode. I am so excited to bring you these conversations with Vukani and Mohammed. As with all episodes of the Playmakers podcast, these conversations are pretty raw, uncut and unfiltered. So do expect to hear the odd swear word that hasn't been beeped and some discussions around sensitive topics. First, we're going to start with Lakhani. Lakani is a Cumbrian mixed heritage writer based in Manchester. She is queer, working class and neurodivergent. Over the years, she has completed writing courses such as Woe Laboratory, Soho Writers Lab, Soho Comedy Labs, Tamasha Playwrights and Box of Tricks's very own Pen Pal Scheme. Her one-woman show, Can I Touch Your Hair, which she wrote and starred in, debuted at Vault Festival and went on to be performed at Hull Truck, Theatre Delhi, Sheffield and Theatre by the Lake. Her writing commissions include Signal Fires by 45 North, Burn Bright's Better in Person and BBC Famalam Season 4. Her Soho Writers Lab play, Senses of Responsibility, was shortlisted for the Lancaster Playwriting Prize. As with so many of our guests, I asked Lakani why she chooses to make theatre.
1: I think I've always had, like, a massive love for theatre. Um, I, As soon as I moved to the London, I went to the theatre, like, constantly, and I was just like, wow, I love this medium of, like, being transported to another place and another world. Um and yeah, I worked front of house at the National Theatre for like six years, so I got to see a lot there as well, which was great. Um wow. I mean, it wasn't all great, I'll be honest, but uh, yeah, it <laughs> yeah, was a pretty decent yeah. building to work in. Met lots of people, you know, can't yeah. complain.
0: <laughs> so you moved to London from where?
1: Um, so from Kendall Cumbria in the Lake District, that's where... I grew up and yeah uh straight to the big city Um small fish jumping into a big pond I guess
0: and what was it like growing up in Cumbria in the Lake District of all places gorgeous place um,
1: yeah it's absolutely beautiful like you can't fault it for it's like fresh air countryside lots of things to do um But yeah, I actually grew up on a council estate in Kendall, and um, it came with its challenges. I'll just say that. Yeah, I probably experienced like quite a lot of racism, um, which was why I couldn't really like wait to leave. I just wanted to get out and move to like a multicultural city. Um, Yeah, which is what I did. It's so interesting because we never think of these places
0: as places that would even have council estates because the image of them that's kind of put forward is so different, you know. I worked on a project in Cornwall a couple of years ago and I'd always thought of Cornwall as just like this gorgeous beach town and one of the things we did on the first day of this writer's room was to do a little tour of kind of the rougher parts of Cornwall Mm -hmm. and boy was that eye-opening. And I suppose for, for you, coming from a place... Like that, and from a, a part of a place like that—that's maybe not really something that anybody really knows about—is already quite an interesting life experience, isn't it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I'd say the word Kendall, and people would just not have a clue. Um... <laughs>
0: yeah. So, so what put your parents to Kendall in the first place?
1: Um. So my mum and dad met in London, and. Um, and they were living in a place called Neasden, which I think is like West London way.
0: Really big Ikea in Neasden. <laughs> oh,
1: right. I didn't know that. I mean, I've, I've never actually been to that part of London, to be fair. It's it's basically uh,
0: Wembley, Neasden.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely yeah. that way. So yeah, back in the early 80s, I think it was a bit rough around that area. Um, I think there was a lot of like, violence amongst like young people and my mum's from like Cumbria um and she proposed to my dad after they had my brother um why don't we move up to the Lake District so that was that decision made oh okay
0: so you moved to you moved to London uh, how many years ago now oh
1: gosh 2011 so that's like what about twelve years,
0: yeah,
1: wild, 12. yeah,
0: and what made you decide to come back up up north?
1: oh, so more recently, um I experienced the beginning of the pandemic in London, and having that time throughout the pandemic, I was just thinking about what it was that I wanted, um and I was like, I just don't want to be in London anymore, like the quality of life had kind of gone down the pan and I was like I think I just want a bit of an easier life all around Mm. in terms of like not being super anxious having more space being able to afford to do more um and actually funnily enough I applied to playbox playwrights for like the previous cohort Um, and I was basing my decision on whether to move to Manchester as to whether I got onto the course (laughs) and I actually didn't get on, (laughs) spoiler alert (laughs) and um, I was like fuck it I'm just gonna move up anyway Um, I was like I think I was kind of using that as my reason but actually I was like I'm moving to Manchester it's happening
0: (laughs) I love that energy that's brilliant and have you found it's it's so much easier to be a creative here in Manchester than it was in London
1: yeah I think it is a little bit easier because it's just a bit smaller and it feels a little bit more community driven um yeah because London's such a big place and there is so much going on there are heaps of opportunities but obviously you are going for these opportunities against like lots of other people Um yeah. so yeah I have found that I've managed to settle into the industry quite well I'm surprised
0: <laughs> I feel like I can vouch for that I think you really have um, when I first moved to Manchester I I don't know it 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 didn't take as long to find my feet as I felt like it did in London obviously I'm originally from Manchester but I moved back about five years ago and it just felt like things started happening really quickly yeah and then like within the last couple of years I felt like your name just kept coming up in conversation Lacani have you heard of Lacani oh yeah (laughs) so yeah you've definitely um cut through here I would say
1: <laughs> yeah, I love that. It feels great.
0: It does, and I think as well like because the rent isn't quite so extortionate here, you're not having to maybe work so many day jobs or work so many hours mm. in your day job in order to just be an artist and subsidize your work, which is yeah. so liberating, isn't it, having mm-hmm. a, just a little bit more space to actually create.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I've found that um I've just been able to focus more on my career. And I think Mm. London didn't really give me that much space. So, yeah.
0: Yeah. And do you feel like you've kind of found, you talked about sort of like the creative community. Do you feel like you've you've found like a general sense of community here that you've been able to settle into?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I would say like Box of Tricks have have definitely like orchestrated that for me. Um, Mm. When I went to that 15th birthday party, that was like, a really good moment to meet yourself to meet Steph um I knew of Danika um but yeah it was just nice to like hang out and get to know other writers um yeah yeah
0: and now you're really close friends with Steph and living with Danika so I know.
1: <laughs> I know you can't write it honestly <laughs> yeah
0: so you now are a play boxer, which is really cool because I feel like that journey of like trying to become a play boxer and it obviously just not being quite your time, but you making that, that decision and taking that risk to move to Manchester anyway. And that move to Manchester meaning that you got involved with Box Tricks in various different ways. And then yeah. now you're, a- so it's, it's kind of like, it's all led to this anyway, hasn't it? Which is quite interesting.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It was when I met Steph and then I got um, an email offer from my agent saying, um, do you want to play the lead in Sasha? Um, And I was like, oh, okay, cool. I've just met Steph and she wants me to be in her play. Um, because obviously I'm an actor as well. So
0: for those of you listening who don't know Steph, um, she's not like Madonna. She does have a second name. We're talking about Reynolds, who is a really amazing playwright. Um, who's been working on a play that was called Sasha when Lacani, um played Sasha in that play, um, which was kind of a, a sharing of it that, um, that was done, um, but has since evolved and now has a new name. So, yeah.
1: Yeah, it's cool. <laughs> yeah. And um, I did Pen Pals before getting on Playbox as well. Um, which was really good. It was nice to connect with, like, another neurodivergent writer. um, Yeah.
0: And, of course, Steph was my pen pal when I did the pen pals. So we're building a picture here of just how much of a community this really is and how everybody of knows everybody. And it's Mm -hmm. it's really lovely and and cosy, isn't it?
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Mm. So what has your journey been of becoming a play boxer first of all what was it like getting that call um how has it felt since um in terms of like the play when did that come to you did that start kind of you know start building a shape in your head before you got that call or is it started to kind of fall out of you since you've become being since you've become a play boxer
1: yeah I definitely think I had the idea before I got got accepted onto the uh the year-long attachment and um yeah when I got the call I couldn't believe it I was like this is going to be great I'm going to have time and space to write and develop a new idea and my whole idea is that I just want a brain on stage and I want it to be about neuroscience and trauma and the brain and looking at like mental health and Yeah, and I'm still kind of figuring that out. I've gone through like a bit of a research phase, watching lots of stuff on YouTube and reading bits and pieces to inform the piece. Um, But yeah, it's exciting because it's quite ambitious and I don't really know what it's going to (laughs) be, Yeah,
0: yeah, when I when I read your treatment I was like, oh my god, this sounds amazing. I don't know how she's going to do this, but it sounds <laughs> incredible. Um so how has it been in terms of like the process and having kind of dramaturgical support and also just sort of knowing that it's more about the process rather than the the result. What 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 has that kind of provided for you?
1: Um yeah, that's felt really good for me because I think you can put a lot of pressure on yourself to, like, deliver. And because this is a year-long attachment, the process is slow. And I'm trusting that I'm doing everything I need to get to where I need to get to and not stressing about the bigger things. And I guess having dramaturgical support has helped me not stress about the programming of the play and like the logistics I think I have a tendency to be like but how are we going to put this on what's it going to look like and I'm um, and being a producer and a director but for this it's nice to just take a step back and be like I'm the playwright and it will be what it will be
0: yeah and of course you're working with Conway aren't you Conway McDermott is yes, your yeah. for this amazing playwright in their own right um, but what's what's it been like? Is it your first time working with a dramaturg or is that something that you've done before?
1: Um, it is something that I've done before when I was on Soho Writers Lab and Tamasha Playwriting Course. Um, but this that was all virtual. That was all like pandemic times. Um, yeah. So yeah, I think it's really nice to have that in-person connection and just to go down to the Box of Tricks office and just chat and go off on tangents and come back to the idea um and yeah i'm just enjoying that sense of togetherness with my idea i feel so supported and uplifted so when i'm having a bit of a meltdown being like i don't know what it is does it make sense ah they're reassuring me that like it's a process and it's okay
0: <laughs> yes exactly that so what would you say your main influences are when you're writing
1: um so i tend to write maybe like a little bit politically um Love yeah that. i tend to draw on experiences that i think aren't being spoken about or being given a voice so stories that we don't see told um i often do draw on personal experience Um, So my first play, Can I Touch Your Hair, was about my experience of growing up mixed heritage in Cumbria and not having a clue what to do with my hair. (laughs) And yeah, my second play, Senses of Responsibility, was about a character, Simony, who is a young carer um, and what that experience is like for her and that is something that i've experienced myself but i did a lot of work with this play to like separate myself from the the character and yeah, yeah i think with this idea it's about mental health i have experiences of that but again it's like i'm writing that first draft which might be close to home but in the redrafts we can push the character away from myself a little bit more
0: yeah yeah and create something that's both personal but also identifiable for lots of different people um, who might have experiences of of mental health or might have friends or family who have had um, struggles with mental health in the past. Mm Yeah. Yeah. So in terms of plays that you like, are there any plays that have really stood out for you over the years that might be your favourite play or a play that's
1: inspired you to write or create in any way? I would definitely say Michaela Cole's Chewing Gum Dreams. When I was working in front of house at the National, that play was programmed in the shed. It was like a red outdoor like box theatre. Um, Very temporary, but I saw some of the best work in there. Um, Mm -hmm. And yeah, when I watched Michaela's play, it was so authentic to who she is. And that kind of inspired me to write from my personal experience as well and know that that is a story that is valid and is rooted in specificity and people will want to hear that story
0: I know exactly what you mean I remember seeing that play and thinking it just it just really broadened my ideas of what was possible and what could be a play you yeah. know I think up until that point I had a very different idea of what was allowed to be a play and what kind mm-hmm. of spaces certain people you know people like us were allowed to sort of occupy yeah. um you know, stories were allowed to be told and yeah seeing that was kind of mind-blowing because it was like oh yeah like my yeah as you say my story is my story is valid. Yeah. Um so any advice that you would give to any kind of emerging playwrights?
1: I mean this is pretty basic advice but I would say write. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> write as much as you can when you can. And um I'd recommend getting on a playwriting course. I'd recommend connecting with Box of Tricks. Um and the playwriting opportunities that they offer um but also all the other playwriting programs I think it Mm. really helped me shape my work as a writer and I know it's a bit cliche but that whole idea of like finding your voice um and your authentic voice not the voice that you think you need to Mm. use if that makes sense yeah so when you say a playwriting course
0: um you don't mean necessarily like a, a university course, more just sort of courses with different theatre companies or theatres.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I know like the Royal Court do a really good one. A couple of my pals have been on that one and spoke highly of it. Uh, Soho Writers Lab is pretty decent. Uh, Tamasha Playwrights as well, if you're from the global majority. Yeah. Um, yeah they're really fun you get to like meet other writers and it does help you form your community as well I'd say yeah Mm -hmm.
0: yeah and community is really important isn't it
1: absolutely because writing is like quite an isolating experience and if you're not with other writers talking about your ideas it can feel really insular and I don't know, I get in my head too much about what I'm writing unless I'm talking to other people about it. And then that kind of helps me formulate what my idea is as well. I'm very Mm. open as a writer to discuss things and figure things out. So, yeah.
0: I think that's a good way to be, yeah. Mm.
1: Thank you so much, Lakani. Really appreciate you speaking to me today.
0: You've covered so much ground in such a short space of time. I know,
1: I can't believe it. Look at that. Stunning, uh, thanks so much, Carla.
0: Ah, now wasn't that a gorgeous chat? I can't wait to read Lakani's Playbox Play. It just sounds so intriguing. Next up, we've got Mohammed Barber. Mohammed is a poet, playwright, and author. He was a member of the inaugural Old Vic Theatre Makers program in 2020 and was shortlisted for the Box of Tricks Screenplay Award in 2020. His short story, Rose and Lemongrass Tea, was published in the International Contemporary Writing Journal, Wasafiri, in December 2021. Now, full disclosure, I am the dramaturg on Mohammed's Playbox Play, but it's very early days, so this conversation was a great opportunity for me to get to know him better. And of course, it's a great opportunity for you listeners to get to know him as well. So without further ado, here's
2: Mohammed. A few years ago, I was in a writing workshop with the Soho Theatre and I was very, very new to writing at the time. Um, I'd sort of like i had been doing a couple of bits on my own, nothing published, nothing that anyone had ever read. And I, I suddenly in this workshop, I found myself in this room um, of all these people that, you know, they were like, oh, I've had this on and I'm doing this and I'm going to the fringe and I'm sat there and I'm like, I barely put a play together. Um, and the question was, why theatre? Why are you writing in this medium? And everyone had such spectacular answers. They were like, oh, because of this. And I've been going to the National since I was a kid. Or, you know, I saw this when I was a young person. Or I was completely moved by Jerusalem, by Jez Butter. Oh, you know, all of those very, very theatre sort of answers. Um, and then it was my turn. And I said, it's because I can't be bothered writing long description. It just bores <laughs> me out. That's honestly the reason why it was theatre and nothing else. I'm like, eh, dialogue. That seems a lot shorter to write. I'll be able to do it quicker turned out to be nonsense in the end but like that honestly that is the reason so dialogue is
0: king for you then I guess
2: dialogue is king so my um uh, maybe you'll get around to asking this later so I'll shut up but like in terms of influences and the people that I love um the screenwriter and uh playwright Aaron Sorkin is my like writing hero and it's mine as well (laughs) so as as I kind of um You know, uh, these past few days I've I've been a bit ill, right? So I've been going, I've been watching Newsroom again.
0: I would definitely say one of the best bits of television I've ever seen. And it made me want to be a smarter, more informed writer who really does their research and doesn't ever dumb down their audience or spoon feed their audience.
2: Yes. And the only thing I can add to that is it pushes me, I think, in exactly the same way as it. I think it inspires you yeah. um, to kind of not to to treat your audience as smart as you know what they will pick things up and if they don't pick it up, then what's more important than the detail is actually the story and then you, you'll yeah. you'll pick up on that instead.
0: I would say it's a similar kind of mechanism with Succession. And shows like industry where you might not necessarily understand what they're talking about but you understand the emotion behind it and you understand how certain decisions are affecting the character dynamics and sometimes it feels like you know the show itself and the plot is this this runaway train and you're always kind of as an audience member trying to kind of play catch up with that train you know you're trying to jump on at the next stop but I think that's okay I think that's exciting
2: no I I think it definitely is like and in those other tv shows or other pieces of theatre writing whatever it is that I have seen where you are kind of spoon-fed a lot more um, where things are explained in a way where like the characters would never explain it in that way they would never talk in that way because they just know it's knowledge they already have it's there's a lot of like fluff around around that which I think is, is is unnecessary and yet at the same time an Aaron Sorkin script could be reduced by 50% Any sing, any single one of his episodes could be reduced by 50% um and you would still get the entire story because the way that he writes is I'm not it's gonna sound hard. I'm not saying he writes a lot of fluff, but he I don't know, there's he, he you know that cardinal sin that everybody keeps in telling every writer is make sure you don't overwrite. Mm. So Sorkin has turned overwriting into an art form.
0: Yeah, because he uses a lot of sort of flowery language,
2: doesn't he? and lots of it like lots of it there's um i don't want to if people haven't seen the newsroom it's not something i want to spoil but i mean it is like what eight years older but um there's one particular scene where um where the uh, the characters are being deposed it's the deposition um and kind of they go off onto this tangent about how can we remember all the uh, you know santa's nine reindeer And they're talking about something really important because, you know, these people are being sued for millions of dollars. Uh And they're just having this random conversation about Reindeer. And like most of the writers would never throw something like that in because it's completely distracting. But the way he does it is he completely leans into it. So it's it's, it's distracting for some of the characters in the scene, but not for others. And as an audience member, it just makes you laugh.
0: I think it gives us such a a lovely sense of light and shade, which otherwise would not be there. You know, when we're talking about a show like The Newsroom, where um, it is a pretty dense excavation of,
2: Mm,
0: you know, national politics, it could be really dry and it could be really heavy and it could be almost kind of too much. It could be like watching the news and we don't want it to feel like that. So he he adds that flowery language and those jokes and that light and shade and those very human conversations between characters, which are so so vital to you kind of understanding who these characters are and why they do what they do. Because actually that's all we're really interested in is why you do what you do, not the minutiae of what you are doing.
2: Mm, No, that's exactly it.
0: So Um... why not TV then? if you're so passionate about writers like Sorkin and shows like The Newsroom?
2: I don't think I've come across the right idea for TV yet. Mm. Um, There's one thing that Sorkin said about TV, which is if you're writing a TV show, it's because it's based in a particular location. Um, So all of his TV shows have a set location. So is it Sunset Boulevard, I think it was? It was set in... um,
0: yeah, on six Sunset on sixty was it called?
2: Something like that. It, it I I know, can't, yeah. uh, that one escapes me because I haven't seen it. But um, West Wing is set in the West Wing. The newsroom is set in in, in the newsroom. Um,
0: studio sixty on the Sunset Strip. It's set it in a
2: studio. Called? Yeah. Um, his films are not though. His films could be located, you know, almost anywhere. Mm. Uh, Trial of the Chicago Seven is majority of it is inside the courtroom. Yeah. Uh, Molly's Game is. Um, most of it is actually about her deposition, and then there's lots of scenes sort of surrounding the poker games that she was in. Um, Jobs is basically three massively long scenes. Yeah. Um, which is, I loved that film. I don't know if, if you've seen Jobs, but yeah,
0: it's conceptually brilliant, isn't it? You know yeah. how to tell how to how to tell such a a sprawling story of a life. Um, and and kind of put it into a film, and to kind of do this this three long scenes essentially is a really right. interesting. It's way it's set it. in
2: real time. Those are three scenes that happen across the twenty twenty five minutes, wherever it is that they're mm-hmm. set in. And I was just anyway, it's I could uh, you know I can fanboy forever, but I'm I'm not going to.
0: But you're you're absolutely right. He is very good at picking a really interesting precinct. A precinct that, you know, to your average Joe, could feel quite overwhelming or um, alienating. And then he puts these really believable, multifaceted, identifiable, but not always necessarily likable, Mm -hmm. because they're often very flawed, human beings into that precinct. And that's how we access that world through them, Um, which is just fascinating, isn't it?
2: No, it, it definitely is. And he, he, you know, like every writer, he has his flaws. When it comes to diversity and that kind of stuff, you know, his credentials are not up there with, you know, with other writers. But what no. he does, I think he does very well. But mm-hmm. I'm going to give a counterpoint to, 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 to the Aaron example, mm-hmm. um, which is another playwright who I absolutely love is James Graham. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: mm-hmm.
2: And he does, I think he's a very Sorkin-esque writer, actually, in, in how he approaches things and how he writes dialogue. Mm-hmm. But the big difference between those two are that um, James picks some of the most mundane and dull subjects that no one would ever touch. Yeah. Um, kind of a a play set in uh, people counting ballots in in in, a, in an election. Yeah. I mean, um, a story about uh Parliament, kind of when when when, which mm. is what this house is all about.
0: A lot of people don't realise how interesting that ballot counting process actually is and all the things that can go wrong and the pressure that is put on the people who are doing the counting and so it seems mundane on the surface and then he kind of digs so much deeper
2: doesn't he right it's the way he digs underneath those layers of kind of because you yeah you you look at it you read the you know you read the copy and go well why would I why would I watch a play about people counting ballots? it just seems like a dull thing um and which is what i thought when i watched this house and the only reason i watched this house is because it has a uh, it represents the uh the old mp of batley and spen so batley is is where i was born that's where i'm from so uh i think it was it whenever it was i can't remember at the top of my head anymore but the reason i watched that one was because a, a, a historic mp from my town was being represented Because the story did absolutely nothing for me. And then I watched it and, like, my jaw was uh, dropped by the the time the play ended. You know, he worked his mind. And I've been a fan of his ever since then, really. Yeah. And
0: I think what's so clever about it is that, you know, we we kind of imagine, particularly people who are ballot counters, almost as, like, these faceless... Or, you know, maybe some people might even believe that, that these ballots are counted by machines. But... What it does is it reminds us that actually these people are humans and humans are fallible and mm. that's, that's where the drama is, right?
2: Oh, absolutely. There's an entire, like... I mean, as Carla, you already know, but for anyone kind of listening who doesn't know me, I tend to write primarily, though not completely, on, 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 on true history, on stuff that actually happened. And just the other day, you know, on the point about ballot um, counting, I was reading an article um about the ballot counters in America and all the crap that they went through when Trump wasn't elected um yeah. because Trump was basically going around, going around saying that you know these people are unreliable and they're all democrats and they rigged the election and and um he also said that the machines that do cuz i think the ballots are they're counted electronically and they're also counted by hand to make yeah. sure that there's no discrepancy between the two so they mm-hmm. use, in America, they use technol in the USA, they use technology a lot more than, than we do over here. I mean, they have yeah. to. There's like 300 million people there. <laughs> um, or, well, there's not that many voters, but, you know, there's a lot more people there. And the company that was attacked by Trump saying that your machines are unreliable, they took uh, Trump to court. And they won. They, they got this massive, massive payout. Um. And I'm like, there's a there's a, there's a story to be told. There's somewhere in amongst of all of that, there's a story to be told. And this is where the newsroom actually, you know, just a circle back comes in. You know, people just say crap live on air. They're never challenged about it, and then people pick it up and believe it to be true because somebody that they hold in value has said it. Um, and then it it needs to go to the court for some for it to be established that you know what that was bullshit.
0: There there is an episode of this American life that um, explores exactly what you've just talked about and it's called Watching the Watches and it is about election ballot counting and human transcribers and human error and all the controversy around it. Watching the Watches it's called episode 781 and it's a really interesting insight into that whole process so yeah definitely worth a listen for anyone who's interested in ballot counting and elections and yeah of course this house is also a very good reference point for that as well
2: it's a fascinating piece of you know our democracy that people don't generally people don't get to see
0: yeah so you mentioned as you were talking about that play that you are from Batley in Yorkshire so let's kind of go go back to Batley Um, And Mm -hmm. talk a little bit about what it was like growing up there. And what about growing up there made you feel like you wanted to tell stories? How
2: did you become a storyteller? I never really know where to start with an origin story like that. So I was, I grew up in uh, a strict sort of, uh, I, I grew up in a strict Muslim household. But there were lots of stories about all of that when I was growing up. The story about the life of the Prophet, the other Prophets that came before him, stories that are in the Qur'an, and then of course stories that kind of, um, across Muslim history. Um, and most of it was like strongman history, it's about one guy, elected by God, um, you know, kind of came down onto the planet and then he was he did all of these wonderful and thingy things. Um, and most of it was hagiographical. It's all about praising these people like that, that came about. Obviously at that time I didn't I didn't have this sort of critical lens on. Um but that's what it was. Um so those are the you know, I grew up around a lot of stories like that. I also grew up watching a lot of Bollywood as a counterpoint. So there's all of these like historical stories which like are made as sort of historical but slightly fictionalized. <laughs> Sli- um,
0: ever so slightly fictionalized. <laughs> ever
2: so slightly. Um <laughs> And then you've got the absolute like chaos that is, you know, masala films in Bollywood, sort of big genre-crossing, huge blockbuster films with singing and dancing, with a romance in the middle, lots of unbelievable action scenes, which, just you know, and and terrible, sounds uh, you know, sound leveling when people are getting punched. Um,
0: I'm a I'm a big fan of Bollywood, particularly kind of pre, 1995 Bollywood. The Bollywood of the 80s was something to be reckoned with. Movies like *Kunbari Mang, which just blew my mind when I saw it, because I was like, wait a minute. Kabir Bedi's character fed her to the crocodiles and then she came back with plastic surgery, but kind of looked exactly the same, Mm. except she didn't have the mark on her face that she had Mm. before she was fed to the crocodiles. And now he believes that she's a completely different person because now she's got that drip and nice hair. (laughs) All right, cool. I'm for this. Let's go.
2: (laughs) That's the level we're talking at. I mean, literally it's that thingy. And um, I'm a nineties kid. So a lot of the Bollywood that I watched was sort of late nineties, 95 onwards really. Um, and then two thousands. I watched a lot of the the two thousands Bollywood. My favourite film being Kabi Kushi Kabi Gum, ah, which is all of you know. As Karan Johar, the director said, it, it you know it's all about family. But in there, there's the 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 mother character played by Jaya Bachchan. Oh, uh, she seems to have this superpower, where every single time, like her son, who um, you know part of the story is that the son gets banished, and she's completely broken by it. Yeah. Um, whenever he enters the area that she's in, the vicinity, not like so she can't see him, but the vicinity, yeah. um, she like the wind sweeps across her Ouch. face. She turns to face the camera, and the music <laughs> begins, and like,
0: <laughs> it's so. And the music is some of the best music you will hear from a Bollywood film. Some of the most oh, classic Bollywood songs.
2: Completely iconic. I mean, every single every single song in that film is a banger. I mean, can you yeah. actually say that about most Bollywood films, so actually most albums that you hear by your favourite artist, I would say probably not, but like, those, that's one of the few um, that every single song in there is, you know, is a classic. So I've got all of these sort of like, little influences sort of running around. Um, And then I got interested, I watched, um, you know, I watched a lot of Western TV and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Star Wars was a big thing for me. I really, really loved, and I still do, I mean, despite, the varying levels of quality of the films that came out um, over the years. So let's just leave it there to be politically. Um,
0: <laughs> Is it fair to say then? Because I was a big Star obscure. Wars fan growing up. And I think that Star Wars and Bollywood bizarrely have actually really influenced my writing in the sense that I'm quite attracted to big sort of big scale epic stories with lots of characters that happen in lots of locations. Is it fair to say that you have a similar approach
2: maybe subconsciously it's not something i've ever really thought about because most you know maybe um my writing journey has is is still relatively recent um but before the lockdown i wrote one play Uh, well it was a film and that was and that was a cross-continental sorry cross-country film lots Mm -hmm. of different locations uh, an intimate story of, uh, you know, of a woman who's lost her son um, at the heart of it. So it doesn't have a huge cast of colourful characters. Um, but it is, a, you know, it's a story on a big scale. I mean, she yeah. goes from a little suburb in northern England um, to, you know, all the way to Vietnam. Wow. Uh, and then kind of Laos and uh, Thailand and Cambodia and all that kind of stuff. Because at that time, I, I was in the writing stage. I was like, wait, did, why would I make it small? She goes everywhere. So let's make her go everywhere. Um, and then lockdown hit. And what I saw was, so so this is consciously what I'm thinking is uh, when I saw a lot of one person stuff, you know, stuff on digital media and whatnot. And there was a lot of it that I really liked. And there was a lot of it I really didn't like. Um, and I particularly felt that as we were coming out of lockdown, which I think, I think, I think in hindsight, we probably came out a lot faster than I or we've recovered a lot faster than I thought we were going to. Um, but whilst we were caught up in the moment and people were talking about putting on things, um, and, you know, remember social distancing inside theatres, so everything was still really small scale. You didn't have anything big budget. Yeah.
0: Um,
2: I just got a bit bored of all of that. I was just like, I need to start. I want to write. I don't want to write a one-person show. I don't want to write something a two-hander. I want to write something big and something epic and something... Massive, because by the time that it's actually ready to go, by the time that the script is ready, that it can be R, and d and all that kind of stuff. I mean, God knows how long COVID's going to take, and we, you know, we were in, we were bang in the middle of COVID at the time. Mm. Um. So I thought, forget it. Like, I'll just start writing big, massive, epic things. So consciously, that's what was going on in my head. Actually, lockdown is the thing that pushed me to write big stories with lots of characters, with lots of things mm. going around. Um, mm. because it wasn't gonna, it wasn't gonna get produced anyway um so i thought well (laughs) what's stopping me from writing something massive then um and i've more or less like now that kind of you know formal lockdown is over and covid is obviously still kicking about but um the world has pretty much gone back to normal Mm. um i've still continued with all of that i haven't actually written i haven't written a full-length play with two three characters yet i've written lots of small smaller plays kind of like 15 20 minutes with A couple of characters Mm. um but nothing but nothing small scale yet and i I, maybe the whole bollywood thing did have an impact i don't know Mm. um and i do wonder whether i'll go down that route of writing something a little bit far more intimate and something a a, a lot smaller Um, but
0: it's not what's lighting your fire right now
2: no not at the moment i did have an idea it was it was a story about um, about the composer J S Bach. I thought I'd write. I really wanted to write a play about him, because we all had our lockdown discoveries, right? You know, we went onto YouTube and we fell down those YouTube holes and Wikipedia articles and all that kind of stuff. And one of the discoveries for me was it was was Bach and his music, um, and particularly his church music. The stuff I knew before was just like you know the the, the cello suite and the violin sonatas and partitas and a little bit of the organ music you know the d minor kind of um takata and all that kind of stuff but he was primarily a church composer he wrote one cantata which was around about 30 minutes of music every single week um and he did at least a full five cycles of that now if you think about kind of how long it might take you to write a piece of music or a new play Mm. imagine writing a 30 minute play every single week um incredible in and out in and out and then when it came to the big festivals like easter and christmas and all that kind of stuff he would write something on a much more monumental much 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 bigger scale so Mm -hmm. the saint matthew passion for example that would be performed at easter is two and a half hours long wow i mean yeah he only had to write that once a year but like he you know the guy was a machine he was churning out lots of stuff and there was he was one of my discoveries and i thought you know what there's there's i think there's a there's a story to be told in that Have we as a society kind of like the way that his music is performed, the way that I've experienced it when I've gone to churches to listen to it and all that kind of stuff is we've just turned this guy into an absolute angel and a saint. Um, That's how we like perform his music like the guy was a god and he was a godly composer. But actually, where is his personality? Where's the wit? Where's the humor? Is there a story? You know, the story of the man is completely lost behind his music. And I do wonder how he would have felt about that. Yeah. Um, because this is a person who had a brawl inside church, who stabbed a bassoonist because he didn't agree with him, um, <laughs> and preferred getting paid in beer, um, and had like twenty kids. Wow, and the guy was very sexually active.
0: Yeah, um, I mean he's what they probably would have described in the old days as a rogue.
2: <laughs> I think he definitely was because he was a shit student. He he scored yeah. really really badly at school. And yet he wrote some of the most technical music, mathematically technical music. I'm not going to go into the mathematics of his fugues or anything like that, but like, <laughs> you know, he was very, 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 very clever.
0: There um, you go. Kids, um, just because you're struggling at school does not mean you're not smart and doesn't mean you can't be one of the best of whatever thing you choose to pursue.
2: Just today, actually, I saw a tweet about a, a, young, a, a, a young woman who didn't do very well on her A-levels, but through sheer persistence and like, just she kept at it, kept at it, kept at it. Over a decade later, um, 12 years later, she graduated as a doctor. Um, So, you know what? Keep at it, kids.
1: Keep
0: at it, I love that. Um, So finally, I'd just like to ask you a little bit about your experience of doing Playbox so far um, and whether you could kind of, yeah, just give us a bit of a log line, I guess, for your play that you're working on through this process of Playbox.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm just going to finish off the Bach point because I realised I sort of left that half in the air. But um, that for me is going to be a more intimate kind of introspective look into, into his life and his story. Um, so I think that might be a two-hander. It's going to be a conversation between him and the new generation that he's teaching. That's what I'm thinking of at the moment, but it's a really niche story. And unfortunately, I kind of, for reasons I, I won't go into, I had to sort of ditch it for other things uh, for the time being. It's something I really want to go back to, but we'll, you know, we'll see. One of the reasons is at the same time I was thinking about writing the play, uh, Nina Raine had written her play called Bach and Sons, which was on in London at the time. Um, so that's one of the reasons I decided to ditch it, because somebody else was also doing a similar sort of thing. Mm. Um, it won't be the same thing as as me. My idea was completely different, but it's the same sort of thing of looking into his life and 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 who he was.
0: I think it's a really important thing to not just accept one person's version of a story as the only version that ever gets to be told. Um, and I think it's re- a really important thing when we're talking about kind of representation in general. There's a lot of you know you might pitch something to a production company or to a theatre. And it's like, oh, we've we've already got a play about a black woman, so we can't have another one. And it's like, well, (laughs) we are not a homogenous glob. We are a multitude of various different walks of life. And, you know, even when you're just looking at one particular subject matter or one particular person in history or, you know, maybe even someone more contemporary... There's so many different angles. There's so many different perspectives, and I think it's really important to make sure that a wide range of people get to tell those stories. Um, and that's not to say, you know, I think I think we can be very repetitive with the kind of stories that do get a large platform. I mean, mm-hmm. how many different versions of Shakespeare are we going to do right. before we, you know, maybe save some of that budget and some of that space for more original stories? So, yeah, I don't think we should ever shy away. You know, if Shakespeare can be retold and retold and retold and regurgitated in so many different ways, then why can't we have two plays about Bach told by entirely different people from very different walks of life who will therefore have very different perspectives on who this person was and what they have meant for the musical landscape and the wider world?
2: It took me a really long time for somebody for me to accept that actually somebody did say that to me when I was when I said oh I've I've ditched the idea I'm done with it now and they said exact what you just said now exactly that is what they told me it's like there are lots of there's lots of Shakespeare out there and I'm a a big Shakespeare fan I really enjoy going out to watch Romeo and Juliet and the Tempest and all like I love it I really do and I'm going to continue doing that
0: no, I do. I do. I do love him. And I'm not I'm not or I love his work. I'm not sure about the guy. I never, never got to know him. But, um, <laughs> you know, he's he's created fantastic things. It's just.
2: But it's done again and again. It's and done again, again and again. And we and need
0: like... to interrogate. If we're choosing to do another version of Shakespeare, we really need to interrogate why we're telling that story, why we're telling it now and how we can. Reversion it so that it's as relevant as possible for modern times and so that new audiences can, you know, engage with it in perhaps ways that they haven't had the opportunity to
2: before. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I'm just going to round that off by saying that I think uh, when you're a writer from uh, often from a minority background, often there's a pressure or you feel that pressure of, well, I'm going to get selected if I write about minority issues. That's like my USP. And I'm not saying you shouldn't write about minority experiences, but like if you get pigeonholed into that box of, well, you can only write about women's issues or you can only write about brown things or you can only write about gay things. Mm. It's like, no, I can write about lots of different things outside of that because then those other stories that are not necessarily or specifically linked to identity, that then becomes the, um, uh, the not the refuge, that then becomes the domain of uh, essentially white middle-class men. Mm-hmm. so they type. get to write all of the Aaron Sorkin type stories
1: mm-hmm.
2: um, about the news and politics and the state of the world uh, the state of the nation and kind of media You know, there's, I think there's some incredible plays about uh, artificial intelligence and technology and um, the internet and all that kind of stuff that are yet to be written or are being written and it seems like all of those stories are just going to end up being written by white men and yeah. someone like me or you won't get that opportunity because oh well you're brown and gay so that's what you're going to do yeah. Um. so but that's one of the reasons I could really want to stick to the classical music Bach play because mm. I'm like well, why can't I write about classical music why does Peter Schaffer have to do it yeah. you know, why is he the last word on Mozart mm. um, why does Nina have to be the last word on Bach yeah. well, you, know, you know of course uh, she doesn't um, yeah. but you've got to have the confidence to be able to go no fuck that I'm going to go ahead and do it um,
0: yeah good and you see you. what happens after so let's talk about Playbox. Let's talk about yes. how, yeah. Let's talk about um, your experience of Playbox so far, and what it's like knowing that you have a support system to help guide you through the process, offer you dramaturgical support, and that it's not, you know, a process that is results based. It's something that allows you to sort of figure it out. How does that? How does that feel? And what's it been like so far?
2: Uh, In a nutshell, really weird. Um, (laughs) Like, really odd. Because, and now comes the longer answer, because um, I don't know what it's like for other people, but I always felt the writer had to go off, like, fuck off, go into your hole, do your job, come back with a script, and then tell me when it's done. That's (laughs) literally what I thought, how things worked. And then I found out, like, several months later, into my writing journey, that um, people had dramaturgical support and they would write things and have readings of them and workshop things before they ever sent it to a competition. I was like, is that allowed? Like, is that even allowed in the rules? Of course (laughs) there's no rule that says you can't. And that's what people take advantage of. And it's going to be so unlikely now, I think. I mean, it's completely possible. But I think it's so unlikely that the next Bruntwood winner or the the next new piece of writing that goes onto the national stage or whatever like big competition winner it's going to be is because there's it's a guy it's a person like me locked away in a room and then comes out six months later with a script and then that's the thing that's going to win no it's going to be something that's had work put in it's going to be someone that a director has looked over or a dramaturg has looked over or that's had a week-long r&d somewhere um that's probably had a couple of public readings and some feedback Uh, maybe even had like a scratch run somewhere or something like that like, yeah. that's the kind of stuff that ends up winning because it's had the work put in to shave off all the crap, fine-tune the good stuff, um, and sharpen the good stuff. Yeah. So, th- And this is the first time in Playbox I've had that experience because I, I didn't know it existed. I did not know something like this happened. I literally thought you wrote a script and you sent it off and that was the end of the story. I did not know about the ongoing, like, work that would get, that people are helping you to put in to your first draft. Yeah. Um I'm having to adapt my process as a result because everything happens in my head. I think for a lot of writers that's the case. We exist in a universe that we create within our own heads, which is where which is why we're all psychotic. And like to to kind of externalize that process now with other people who are saying, "No, let me help you. Let me enter your world. Um let me help you flesh out the story. Let me help you think about structure and, and whatever it is in characters and suggest, you know, the way that things work in a writer's room, for anyone that knows what a writer's room is like, you've got a bunch of people around a room saying, nah, that's not going to work. Second person goes, I think this. The fourth person will go, no, yeah, yeah. what about this? And then the fifth person will go, yeah, but let's tweak it like this. And then, okay, yeah, that's going to work. Great. And then they, and then, you know, the this, this script is, some one person will write it, but like six or seven different people might feed into it. And that's how the word at work, you know, world of scripted television tends to work. I Absolutely. don't think it works like that in soaps.
0: To some extent, it does work like that. You have long-term conferences and long-term story conferences and short-term story conferences where stories do get pitched and discussed and developed in the room. And, you know, I suppose different to other shows or plays, there's a level of, like once the story team has got what they wanted from those conferences, then they put together a story document and decide exactly what story is going to be told. Um, and then it's kind of thrown back to the writers to sort of write the dialogue for whatever those story beats might be. Um, but, you know, I've never worked on any show that hasn't been collaborative. And I think your, your point about the level of development that a play might be given before it's entered into one of these big awards is absolutely valid and I think a lot of people don't know that and I think it's really crucial that people do know that because there might be many times where you enter one of these big awards and you don't win it you don't get anywhere with it and you see who's won and you're like ah oh, why why do they keep winning things and I never seem to get anywhere and maybe the answer is that they've actually got a huge support system around them Um, and maybe some of that support system if not all of that support system comes from a certain level of privilege and the contacts that have come through that privilege and this is why it's kind of problematic to have awards that are given out for plays because it was just the best play this person wrote the best play but what resources did they have at their disposal to write the best play do you know what Mm -hmm. I mean Mm -hmm. and I think that's what's so exciting about a scheme like Playbox is that you don't have to come from a particularly privileged background to enter in on you know onto the playbox scheme or to be on the playbox scheme you just have to be somebody that you know box of tricks has fostered a relationship with and started to understand kind of what drives that person and you know you just have to be a playwright that has something to say and that we're excited mm. about and maybe is saying things that you know with their work that perhaps theatre and the world of theatre and the world in general needs to hear.
2: I've loved it so far. It's been such an easy and smooth ride. It's been really lovely to know that the interest for Box of Tricks is me as a writer, not specifically the play, by which I mean kind of like the play will be what it is, but they're more interested in developing me. So then the next play I write is even more exciting than the first one, Um, which I, I don't no, if anyone has that approach. I'm sure some I'm sure some people do. There's some great theatres out there and they're doing some great development work. Um okay. I can't think of any at the top of my head that play like. Um so that's incredible. Um so my story, my play is about the first group of activists um who founded the first South Asian gay nightclub in the late 1990s Sorry, the late nineteen eighties going into the nineteen nineties. That is what my play is about. It's about this group of people who come together to form this um, safe space for South Asian LGBT people. Um, the pressures of the AIDS pandemic upon them as, you know, many of their friends are dying around them. Um, and then also kind of what's happened to them after effective treatment becomes a thing. Um, and how that affects their, um, you know, their the relationships between them.
0: Mm.
2: So that is what the story is about, and it's inspired by, um, it's inspired by a drag queen I met uh, a few years ago, who was at those very nightclubs, and he used to perform there, and he started telling me all of these stories about kind of all this stuff that he did, and it shocked me that as someone who I, in my, kind of, in my opinion, I'm relatively self-aware and well-informed, and there was this entire chunk of my history as someone who is South Asian and, and also LGBT, um, that I just, I was completely unaware of. Like it just, I I had no idea that any of that ever happened. And I'm like, the story, the LGBT story of resistance and so on and so forth is, is relatively well documented um, in England and Stonewall and all that kind of stuff, which is fantastic. Oh. And we have an entire history of, like, black LGBT activism as well, which is great. But the, I didn't know the South Asian version existed. So never mind that it was not documented. I didn't even know that it was there to be discovered. Um, so that's what inspired me to write this story of kind of this this nightclub that they founded. So the, the story itself is going to be fictionalized and names are going to be changed and so on and so forth. But it is... Um, It is based on a true story, is inspired by real people and and, and real events and how and I think in a way, maybe how we've forgotten about them.
0: Yeah. And I feel like that's kind of a running theme with everything that you have talked about. Certainly in this conversation is making sure that these parts of history and these people, these historical figures are not forgotten. And I think that's a really beautiful thing to bring into your work. Mohamed Barber, thank you so much for talking to me today. This has been such a wonderful conversation and I feel so fortunate to be your dramaturg on your Playbox play and I can't wait to see how it develops.
2: Thank you very much.
0: So there's your last two chats with this year's Playbox cohort. I hope you enjoyed getting to know Lucania and Mohamed as much as I did. And if you missed out on the previous episode of the podcast featuring Adam and Safina, make sure you listen back to episode eight. You can find out more about Box of Tricks via social media at B O T T C on Twitter and at Box of Tricks Theatre on Instagram. You can find me at Carla M Sweet on both platforms. Lakani is on Twitter as at Lakani Chirwa. That's spelled L E K H A N I C H I R W A, and Mohammed is also on Twitter at M Thirteen Barber. Thank you so much for listening and for supporting us throughout season one. Don't forget to share it. Let us know your favourite episodes, write us reviews on iTunes. That helps people find us. And of course, subscribe. We'll be back early next year for season two of the Playmakers podcast. I'll see you then.